Hello again. Welcome to Uncensored Wizard. In this episode, I'm going to talk about some of my thoughts and beliefs around the experience of depression and anxiety. I know that not everyone's experience is the same, and I know that not everyone um, has had or dealt with the same mental struggles or mental illness as others. So this episode is really my experience of it and my beliefs around it. And I hope that for those of you who've ever walked through the valleys of depression and anxiety, that you will find this helpful. And especially for those who grew up in a church culture that hasn't really known how to adequately deal with the issues of mental illness, I hope you find some encouragement in this episode. Enjoy. This Sunday, I went to a church where the pastor was starting a new sermon series on healing. This is a Pentecostal church, so the subject matter didn't surprise me. I know this pastor well. I've heard him preach before, and so I didn't feel too terribly uncomfortable attending a service in which this was the subject matter, as I would probably every other Pentecostal church in the area. I want to start off by saying that this pastor did a fantastic job acknowledging the inconsistencies in Scripture about healing, and more importantly to me, he placed healing within the context of wholeness, which is almost how it always appears in Scripture. Eventually, he went on in the sermon to talk about the healing of our minds, our brains, and, um, and about mental illness, although he avoided that term altogether, and instead talk solely about depression and anxiety. This is a reasonable issue for a pastor to talk about. Our world is deeply afflicted by sadness, fear, and anxiety at the moment. It was really refreshing to uh, to hear a Pentecostal talk about their own struggles with depression, and he even mentioned biblical stories in which the protagonist was depressed or at the end of their hope. But he made one statement in the sermon that I think is typical um, or something you might hear typically in the church and especially among charismatics. Um, it's a statement that I think is is well intended but but terribly misguided. And it's a statement that's based on the presupposition that the ideal state for all of humans is one of health, happiness, and goodwill. He said, God is not okay with you living in depression and anxiety. And this was in the context of him talking about healing and how it will be God's desire for you to be healed from your depression and from your anxiety. Um, He said this a couple of different ways. At one time, he said, God does not want you to live like that all the time, which I felt like was a good disclaimer. It didn't completely dismiss the experience of depression or anxiety or fear but emphasize the ongoing effect of it may not be of God's will, which is something I I don't know that I would disagree with necessarily. Uh, And then he said something to the effect of it is not God's will for you to be tormented by depression or by sadness. Again, I, I think in the context of the whole sermon, everything was really great, but it was a statement that got me thinking about how the church typically thinks about 
uh, depression, especially the church, the Pentecostal church that, that I came up in. And it is here where I depart in beliefs with most most Pentecostals about depression, anxiety, uh, and maybe and, and mental illness. Um, I, I don't believe. Uh, first off, I don't believe that being happy or joyous is an ideal state of being in which God is continually drawing us to. In other words, I don't believe that being happy um, is necessarily uh, the goal of our journey through life and as a spiritual and religious person, um, I don't believe it's the ultimate goal in our journey uh, with God or towards God. In Bible college, I had a professor named Dr. George Voris. Some of my listeners will recognize that name. Dr. Voris was a trained counselor and had an understanding of human psychology and theology unlike any other Pentecostal scholars I knew at the time. I guess I've always leaned my ear towards those voices who connect the dots between spirituality and theology and psychology uh, that is something I have always been intrigued by and attracted to are the, those connections. As I've gotten older, um, the more I'm convinced that these fields of spirituality, theology, and psychology have in, incredibly important intersections to explore. And, uh, and, and I feel that the church has, has thus far done a very inadequate job of exploring those intersections. It's gotten better, but we are still so far away from really diving into the depths of, um, of our understanding of those things and how they intersect. Dr. Voris was the first professor to help me understand the differences in the communicable versus the incommunicable attributes of God. Of course, this was because he was my theology professor. I learned in his class that the incommunicable attributes of God are those attributes we give to God which transcend our understanding of human existence. That is, we believe God is omnipotent, omnipresent, etc. And these are things in which uh, these are things which humans are not and cannot be, at least in uh, in our current understanding of human existence. On the other hand, there are communicable attributes of God, which are those attributes which humans have inherited as a result of being made in the image of God, uh, or in the Latin image of God is referred to as the Imagio Dei. And in the Imagio Dei, we uh, receive from God uh, these attributes, which are usually thought of as the moral attributes of God. Love, goodness, kindness, etc. These are attributes we give to God, which we as humans also have the capacity to possess. Dr. Voris, though, taught us that we received more than just the moral attributes of God. He argued that we received the emotional attributes of God as well. To him, all human emotion was given to us by our Creator. He taught us that the biblical story revealed that God experienced the same emotions that we did. In the scriptures, we see stories in which God is angry, sad, jealous, happy, and all of the above. 
In Christian theology, Jesus, as God in the flesh, had a full human experience, including crying in the Garden of Gethsemane and at Lazarus's tomb, experiencing despair, feeling like God had abandoned him. Jesus was angry. He was hurt. He was betrayed, jealous, and joyous. Before Dr. Voris was my professor in college, years before, he had preached a sermon at another Bible college that was kind of well-known in the Pentecostal circles at the time, and that sermon was called An Apologetic for Emotion. I've seen the video of it, the video recording of it, and I think it was recorded in the late 80s, early 90s. And in this sermon, he preached to a group of college students, a sermon in which he argued against certain movements at the time within Pentecostalism that had become suspicious of too much human emotion being in uh, in spirit-filled services or so-called spirit-filled services. It was the contention of these movements that we needed to be careful, we needed to be wary of too much human emotion involved in spirit-filled services. And as a result, the pendulum had begun to swing this direction in which Pentecostals were getting suspicious of emotionalism of, of any kind. Dr. Voris addressed this issue and preached an apologetic for emotion. And although today, if I were to watch this sermon or talk about this sermon with others, I would heavily nuance a lot of what he said. But I do appreciate what he was on to. He was on to the reality that human emotions are built into the human experience, that to be fully human in any way, including the ways in which we worship, we had to be open to the emotional experiences of the moments that life provides. And if you believe in a creator, he would say, a creator in which we are made in the image of, then we have to concede that what we experience as humans does not lie outside of the experience of that creator. How could it? Whatever we have has come from the creator. And we might feel the need to identify negative emotions and make them the fault of some outside force. Certainly, I understand that need or, or that desire, that want to, to take these negative emotions and say these don't belong to us or to our Creator, but these are emotions that come from an outside force, such as the devil or even our own alleged fallen nature, which in Christian theology is often viewed as something foreign to the innate spiritual existence that um, that we have and long to experience in the fullness of life. It is hard for us, I think, to believe that our negative emotions are normal and natural. They're painful, so we don't want them to feel like they belong. But I believe they are normal and natural. Even those emotions which we don't typically see experienced by God, such as fear, worry, or anxiety, I believe are still built into the human experience. Not because of some catastrophic, catastrophic fall from the Imagio Dei, but from evolution and the human experience thus far. Fear and anxiety are animal-like instincts that still kick in at times, especially when we are living our lives unconsciously. The deer in the headlights look is all too real in humans. 
Our adrenaline pulses sometimes at the very thought of a threat or the possibility of a threat. As soon as something, thre- as soon as something feels threatening or overwhelming, our brains and bodies will, re- will want to react like an ape in the jungle or a deer in the woods. Human consciousness then becomes a lifelong struggle of understanding our emotions and where they come from. The more conscious we become, the more we are able to see that we are not our emotions and that not all emotions serve us all the time. But sometimes they do, even depression. Biologically, depression may serve as a way to slow down the mind and body so that it can heal properly. This would explain why it is considered to be a natural part of the process of grief. Some scientists are now proposing that depression is actually an evolutionary adaptation that evolved as we became social creatures. For early humans, when resources were low and winter had set in, we needed to rest, conserve our energy, and wait. No need for that dopamine no need for that get for that drive to get up and get at it life was inviting us to rest to lay low it is also possible that it exists as a social defense mechanism for those who feel they have lost social status or have been hurt by other humans to withdraw to avoid any chance of further harm or sustained social attacks Certainly, this isn't a posture we would want to have on a consistent basis or all of our lives, but there is some value to seeing how this does provide a way of rest, a way of respite, and a way to defend ourselves when life has knocked us down and we really don't know what to do. Now, I say all of this as someone who has spent their entire lives reckoning with the shadows of mental illness in my own life and the lives of my family members. Chronic depression and anxiety disorders have plagued my family for at least the last three generations. I was not immune. My entire life, I have struggled with overwhelming emotions and feelings of worry, sadness, and fear. I have shared openly with others, my church and my family, my own struggles, noting that there are some days when I wake up and for no conscious reason at all, everything seems like it's in black and white, as if the sky, as if the clouds have covered the sky in my soul and a dreaded storm is approaching. I've been on medications off and on throughout my life. I've been to therapy for treatment. I have prayed and beat my fist on the altars of churches, asking God just to make me happy and keep me that way. Thus far, though, it appears I'm still a human who experiences mental anguish, despair, and at times torment. For years, the anxiety I carried was compounded by the belief that not only did these feelings suck, (laughs) they weren't even feelings that God wanted me to feel at least not on a sustained and continuous basis. Today in church, when the pastor said, God is not okay with you feeling like that, I felt my heart sink. My heart sunk for those who might be in the throes of grief who have no other choice right now than to feel what they feel 
because those feelings are not going anywhere and maybe for good reason. The last four or five years of my life have been, have been marked by grief after grief. I lost my position in a church that I love. I lost the faith of my youth. I lost my dad. And I lost some of the most important and life-giving relationships in my life. This is on top of all the grief that we're experiencing as a group after the pandemic and the tumultuous times our society is experiencing 2020 and the years that have followed. What I've learned in this time is that God is okay with me not being okay. I can say that confidently because I finally took time to sit with my feelings, to let them hurt, to resist the urge to numb them or distract myself from them. It was in confronting the darkness within me that I learned to sit in it and not be afraid. Once I was free from the anxiety of feeling like I needed to feel happier or free from the anxiety of feeling like the way I felt wasn't what God wanted or was displeasing to God, it was then that I was able to name and face my demons, not by running away from the depression, but in, but allowing it to run its course and to observe how I experience it and to seek what I might can learn from it. I've come to appreciate the winter seasons of the soul. We see this experience archetypically in our stories. Yoda tells Luke Skywalker that he must enter the cave on Dagobah only to face what fears he brings with him. As he enters the cave, a serpent climbs through the tree on his left as he passes. Inside, he must face himself to learn how to face his dark side. Without this lesson, he is not prepared to face the ghost of his father, portrayed by Vader. It is the story of Harry Potter confronting the bogger in Hog at Hogwarts and seeing what he fears most and how impossible it seems to weaken its hold on us even when we know we have the power to do so. It is the liberation of Tila in Subternia, in Masters of the Universe, when she faces Scareglow, who gains his power by feeding on the fear of others. Through facing her fears in the depths of hell, she overcomes them and begins the journey of healing from her painful and confusing past and from her struggles with spirituality. In, in, in that story, not only is Tila set free by facing her fears, but her friends who observe her facing her fears are also set free, and Orko finds his true power, which he struggled to find his entire life because of the testimony of Tila. It is what St. John of the Cross described in his poem, The Dark Night of the Soul. This title became a phrase that was used by Christians in the 17th and 18th centuries to describe a spiritual crisis in the journey towards union with God. St. Paul of the Cross and Mother Teresa both publicly shared how they experienced the dark night in their own lives. I can't speak for everyone's experience, but I can now see my own experiences of grief and depression as a deeply miserable process of growth. In many ways, the depths of darkness I have walked through 
has helped me find healing from my irrational fears and anxieties. There is something about freely surrendering to suffering that ultimately brings wholeness and relief from the suffering. Let us not forget that there is no resurrection without the cross, and there is no cross without the despair and the betrayal of Gethsemane. The story of Jesus' life and miracles itself begin with Jesus' baptism in the wilderness and the subsequent spirit-driven trip into the depths of the wilderness where Jesus would face Satan himself. It is in this analogy where I find the best explanation for the suffering we often feel when we are depressed. It is not the mere suffering of the experience of total emptiness that tortures us. Instead, it is the accusation of the Satan, which is what Satan literally means in Hebrew, the accuser, It is the accusation of the Satan that we can do better, that we shouldn't feel so bad, that we should be happy, and that we can, and that we should use our faith to solve all the inadequacies and bad feelings that we feel in our lives. Just use your powers, the voice of the accuser says. It is the, it is the Satan of our minds that makes us feel less than God's good creation. It is that voice that bullies us and that torments us and that makes us feel bad for feeling what we feel, even when what we feel is the most human and sacred thing we might be experiencing. One one memorable quote the pastor said this morning that I really liked when he was talking about the Satan, he said, if he's speaking, he's lying. What an important reminder for us to remember when that internal voice voice starts making us feel bad. So I will close out this episode with this encouragement. When you are in those dark places and you feel like you should do better or you feel like God should heal you or you feel that what you are going through isn't what God wants you to go through, I invite you to cast your worries aside and lean in to what you're feeling. Surrender to it anyways. Surrender to the process. It is God's will that you feel, that you know that you are alive. And through that feeling that you learn that you are loved and that everything that you are experiencing and the feelings that you are experiencing have been experienced by every human that has ever lived. And to be reminded that God is not put off by your internal storms or your grief In fact, God is at home in your anguish. Remember, while Job was in deep grief and confusion, God did not heal him, nor did God answer the questions of his existence that he had been asking throughout the process of his grief. Instead, when God shows up to Job, finally, he shows up in a tornado, the very thing, by the way, that took the lives of Job's children, and reminded Job that God is at home in the storm. God is at home in what we fear most. God is at home in the chaos. God feels what we feel. And in Christ, we see that God suffers alongside of us because he himself in his humanity has suffered in being tried. He is able to help, and provide immediate immediate assistance 
to those who are being tried and exposed to suffering. Hebrews 2, 18. This morning I had an interaction on Facebook with a um, within a a parenting group for teenagers that I'm part of, <clears throat> and this was a comment I'd left, or there was a comment I'd left on a post that was made by a woman who shared an incident where her husband had lost his cool that morning because he didn't have any clean towels to use before he left for work. And he took out his anger on his daughter because she used the last towel. And uh, this uh, particular group, parenting group, is mostly uh, wives, moms, females. And uh, so I don't comment a lot in the group, but I do whenever I feel like there's a particular perspective I feel, you know, might be helpful. And, you know, I'd, of course, this is a Facebook post. We don't know this couple. We don't know the family. We don't know the dynamics at play. There is so much we don't know, but just based on the post, you know, I immediately resonated with the feelings of that father. I have been um, a jerk to my family at times when uh, it really wasn't their fault. And um, it's not an okay thing to do. And I've had to apologize for it before. And it's not something that is acceptable. However, um, the way that the wife responded is what she was asking about. This woman had posted sharing this incident and then sharing how she responded and asking what others in the group thought about her response. Well, her response was uh, that she went to her her daughter after her husband left, comforted her, and reversed the father's... um, grounding of her. He had grounded her from certain technology and uh, and just gave it all back to her. And that is a perfectly okay thing to do. Again, I, this is, I don't know these people, but I just offered in my comments the perspective of what might be happening because generally when I have felt, um, when I have felt overly angry about something petty, uh, there was generally something at the root of that, some feeling of uh, of disrespect or some feeling of being done wrong. Um, obviously, not the correct feeling to have at the time, uh, possibly, um, and definitely not something that's okay to act out on. But reversing what he had done which isn't going to hurt the child to go without the technology until it can be resolved later in the day. Um, Instead of doing that, she took the tech, she, she gave the technology back when what she could have done was say, Hey, to the daughter, um, your dad seems like he overreacted. I'm going to have a talk with him and we'll deal with it later. And I mean, this is how I would have preferred it to be done because Doing, reversing the punishment only reinforces the feelings of disrespect this guy's having. Perceived feelings, even if they're not real. Or, or excuse me, even if they're not grounded in reality. The feelings are still real. They might just not be grounded in reality. Um, and, you know, a lot of people thought, hey, that's, you know, it's a really great perspective to have. You know, it's never about the towel. Uh, the dad's pissed off about something more than that. 
um, make him man up, make him apologize to his daughter, hold him accountable, um, but give space to, to actually explore what was going on there rather than just continuing to reinforce what probably is going on. And that is that he feels dis- disrespected. Boy, that feels like a podcast all in itself. And I probably just opened up a whole can of worms that some of you feel like need to be discussed. Um, but such is the life of, um, of, of a random Facebook um, provocateur, which I tend to be sometimes. So this led me to several conversations within that thread that started to really revolve around the idea of he's a grown man, he's responsible for his own feelings. His wife is not responsible for his feelings. And I've heard this a lot. I've seen this kind of rhetoric a lot, more and more, Um, not just in terms of men, but in general. People saying, you know, they're responsible for their feelings. You're not responsible for their feelings. Um, No one should feel responsible for another person's feelings. Uh, It's a very kind of common and recurring um, feeling in in our world. And the the thing is, is that there is some truth to it, okay? And and if anyone understands that truth, it's, it's me. Um, because I'm, I'm very empathic. I, I read rooms. I feel other people's emotions very strongly. I connect with people very easily in their own experience. Um, empathy comes very easy for me and can sometimes become a disproportionately, um, idealized, you know, priority in my life. I will prioritize empathy over just about Uh, anything else if I'm not careful, including logic. So empaths, we, we have, um, here's, here's the irony of being an empath. We have probably the, our experience has provided us probably the best perspective on empathy, but our instinct, um, to assume other people's feelings as our own and to live other people's experiences as if it is our experience, that dynamic kind of taints our ability to really articulate to people who aren't empathic or who are lower in empathy, maybe I should say, um, how important empathy actually can be if, if it's if it's understand and used correctly and not something that just overcomes you or overwhelms you, which is, you know, an experience I have often as an empath, you know, and this, this was, uh, you know, being, being empathic has been something that has helped me immensely in ministry, uh, in my careers. Um, when I worked in secular, I use the word secular loosely when I, when I worked outside of church, um, on jobs outside of church, <clears throat> Uh, I'm very naturally empathetic, and that's uh, a way in which I na- na- very easily navigated some tense relationships in, in those worlds. It was a, a tool in my toolbox. The challenge is, is in the process of, of, of being that empathetic, the lines can sometimes get blurry between your feelings and the feelings of others. And I think that's what people are 
I think that's what a lot of people are reacting against when they say things like, I'm not responsible for your feelings. They are reacting against this fear that if they take your feelings too serious, they will begin to feel them themselves. And that's a very valid concern. And sometimes in life, you have to set those kind of strong boundaries. And I think that that is okay, but I think that has to be clearly communicated to others in your life just to say, hey, I'm not as available to you as I once was. And it needs to be that way for a while. And I'm sorry, but at this time, I... I need to excommunicate you from the world of my feelings and emotions. That's a tough thing to do. It shouldn't be done lightly. Um, It should be done after much consideration and when you know it's the right thing to do. But when it's the right thing to do, it's an, you know, it's, it, that means it's the right thing to do. No matter how guilty you may feel about it, it, it may be a hard thing to do, but it still may be the right thing to do. And I think that people can, can do that. But but I think it has to be communicated. I don't think we can live in a society or a world in which we just assume um, that everyone uh, is is never responsible for other people's emotions because that is just not grounded in reality. Human beings are not designed that way. Uh, we have energy about us. We have vibrations about us. We We have our body language and our looks and our smells and the way we interact. We are constantly affecting the emotional state of other people. We are constantly um, being affected by the emotional state of other people. We don't like it, maybe, but we are. And what's funny is I feel like the the um, the, the the idea of we're not responsible for other people's emotions is often echoed a lot within groups who just a few years ago were were raging against the rugged individualism of Western civilization. And that's what's kind of bizarre to me because it, to me it sounds just like another version of, of Western individualization um, or rugged individualism, which is this idea that every man for himself, everyone should learn to balance their own, their own selves out, keep their own lives um, and all this, and there obviously you 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 have to uh, learn self control and how to be responsible for your own life and for the way that you react to the feelings and to the experiences of the world around you. What you're never going to be able to cut off and be human is what you feel and 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 what you're experiencing as you experience the world that is around you, which includes people. In the same way that the weather affects your mood, people are going to affect your mood. And you, as a person, are going to affect other people's moods. And to some degree, you are responsible for that, right? Like if you go around and you're just an absolute asshole to everyone, let's just run the, the far end of this of this thinking, and you're just an absolute asshole to everyone, um, but let's say you're important. You're actually an important person to their lives. Like these people want to be in relationship with you. Maybe, um, maybe for reasons of of love and affection, or maybe just for reasons of of of, of, of friendship or of of you know um, mutually beneficial business agreements. Maybe your business partners or uh, your employees. Whatever it is, maybe maybe you you're a, you're an important person in the lives of these people, and you're just walking around like you're an asshole to them. You can't then turn around and say, "Well, I'm not responsible for your feelings. Get over it." 
It just doesn't work that way. You are responsible for the way that you've made them feel. And yes, we do make people feel um, one way or another. And this is another kind of undertone to that thinking is this idea that you can't, you shouldn't make people feel a certain way. That is inevitable. You are going to make people feel a certain way. I think it was Maya Angelou who said, people uh, won't remember what you did or what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. Because we inevitably make people feel all kinds of ways. And that's a sacred responsibility. I feel like that's something, you know, that there's something important, uh, you know, to that to that responsibility we bear, we, we bear as humans. So, you know, as an empath, though, I, like I said, I, I understand the pushback. The pushback is because we know how important it is to have boundaries, boundaries for others and boundaries for ourselves, because if we're not careful, we will not just empathize with the other person's experience. We will begin to experience their experience. The line gets very blurry for us. We we have a hard time knowing where to stop and so we have to take additional steps uh, to 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 stop, and and people need to understand that I think, um, <laughs> uh, because it's not that we are trying to be harmful or hurtful or unfriendly at times, but we manage a lot of energy, and we know what kinds of energies we can let in and what kind of energies we can't at different times in our lives for for our own benefit and for the benefit of others, and so. That's just something that, but it, but it needs to be communicated. It has to, it can't just be assumed as a society that this is what we're doing. And as an empath, those that are closest to me and that, that I mean the most to, like my family, my loved ones, those who depend on me, those who I'm responsible for in other ways than just their emotional health, but uh, like my children or, you know, anyone that I'm in a relationship with or, or, or in business with even, it goes all the way across the board, Right. That uh, that in those relationships, I bear um, I bear responsibility for the way that I am making them feel, and those that are close to me, especially, I bear that responsibility. I especially bear that responsibility for them, and a lot of the boundaries I set in life for everyone else are so that I can that I can really be my best self for them. And I have not always been very good at that. And in fact, probably not as good as I thought that I was looking back at it, especially when I was in ministry, because that was very much a hard thing for me to do. What I mean is in particular, uh, being involved in people's lives and the life of the church and not living it as if it was my experience was something I, I really was not as good at as as I thought that I was. And so as I've gotten older, I've kind of understood those boundaries and why those are important. So this is a bit of a, obviously it's, uh, I'm speaking very extemporaneously in this podcast. I did not write this out. Uh, and this just happened this morning and it just got my mind flooded because I don't know, it was for the first time I felt like I was kind of confronted, um, with an ideology that's kind of a brick wall, I feel like for human, uh, for human dialogue. I mean, the minute we are no longer responsible for one another's feelings in any way, shape, or form, you know, it's like it's the disintegration of the tribe. I feel like of the community. Um, 
at least a disintegration of the human aspects of it. And, you know, another thing to add to this conversation sounds weird, but I've weird connection, but this is the way my ADHD brain works. I've been I've been really interested in the rise of AI. I don't know if you guys have seen like I mean it is exponentially at least at least in the public forum, right? I have friends who are in the engineering world and every time I bring up um every time I bring up the idea of AI, they say, "Well, it's just you know, it's mainly in the world of tech. It's not something that's really being used mainstream." But now we're you know, we're hearing things like TikTok and we're well, not just TikTok, but especially TikTok. And now other social media companies um, have are building databases of human personality. Basically, you know they're capturing all these various uh, personalities of humanity and and storing them. and And they're even making robots now, and they're using this data to create personalities. You know, parts of things you've said or posted on TikTok or Instagram or that I have have become part of the collective data of human personality. Books are being written now and analyzing it. There's, there are books being written on dating apps and what they're learning about human behavior through dating. And, you know, there's talk now of a future of dating where humans won't necessarily look for sex within the species, but will use toys and robots primarily. And, you know, this is kind of, it sounds far-fetched, but we're seeing some of it come to fruition. These new AI uh, art apps are just blowing my mind. And now we're turning create creativity over. We're just given an idea, right? And then the creative force, well, we have a creative idea, but then the creative force is carried out by AI. We, we have we have the idea, we have the logos word, um, but then it actually being carried out or incarnated uh, is carried out by AI apps or is being carried out by AI apps. Of course, they'll all, you know, there's still art and people are still producing art, but nonetheless, this is, this is a growing field. And this morning I did one of those crazy uh, Facebook, you know, based on your profile pick, this is your personality thing. And I got to tell you, it was spot on. And I know there's bias in that because you kind of want to read yourself into whatever you're reading, but I mean, it was pretty spot on. And clearly, I felt like it had drawn some things from a quick scan of my profile. And I thought to myself, wow, this Facebook AI is getting good. These apps are no longer just striving to be cute and attractive. I feel like they're actually trying to nail it because they know if they nail the personality or they make a match with, you know, with a celebrity personality or even a celebrity look that is actually um, valid that people are more likely to share it. They don't want it to be quirky and funny, but they're actually building algorithms that are getting really good at this stuff. And so my mind was already kind of in the world of thinking about how we we are becoming less humane, or at least at least we are, we're not practicing the skills that make us humane. We're creating a world in which those skills don't necessarily have to be practiced. And then we create ideologies where those skills don't have to actually be practiced, such as I'm not responsible for your feelings. Um, and then, you know, we, we kind of just become avatars of ourselves, um, you know, in life and in, and in tech. And I just, that's a future I don't want to be part of. And I know that sounds crazy apocalyptic and crazy dreary, but you know what? I don't care. I said eight years ago, we were on the verge of apocalyptic times in America and churches thought I was crazy. I didn't even prophesy. I didn't even say it was, let's say it the Lord. I was just like, y'all don't see this coming. It's coming. Of course, not just me, but others um, at the time. 
Don't want to make myself sound too special. That was dumb, Daniel. Take that out. 